Well, as we come to the end of our Easter tide studies in 1 John, I've just been reminded how much I just personally adore John. And as much as one can sort of fathom in their own mind uh, a person that existed a couple thousand years ago, as I try to contemplate him in my own mind, I just think how different this world would be if it weren't for John. You just think about that for a minute. Think about, think about the times that you read something in the Gospel of John when Jesus was made alive to you, or made human to you, or made real to you. Or in his letters, you know, you have a bit more what we might call theology, but, you know, same thing there. I mean, First John's just loaded with little gems that I'm sure all of us throughout the years have been blessed by. Now, just think about the billions of people for whom that's been true over the last 2,000 years And I think you pretty quickly can come to the realization that this world would be a different place. This planet would be less good than it is without um, John and the gospel and letters of John. So it's been, it's always a real privilege to me. I don't know how many times I've studied 1 John in my life, but it it never gets old and I I find something fresh and heartening um, every time. So we might say in general as we come to this conclusion that our studies in 1 John have alluded us or alerted us to the notion that Christianity is meant to be a lived reality. So it includes doctrine, it includes points of data unavoidably, and that's a, a good and right thing. But it can never be reduced to that. that. Those things are always meant to fund a kind of life. So that in the very first sentence, you may remember of the epistle, John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and which our hands have touched, that we proclaim. So right, can you hear in John that there's been a lived reality that was heard and seen and looked at and touched and that that's what he's conveying to us. So if we think of just sort of a quick review that this life that he's commending to us is God is light and as we walk in that light, our life is, so just, just think of 1 John as you've gone through it. That as we walk in that light, our life is increasingly purified by the love that he's lavished upon us that we receive an anointing from him that allows us to love Jesus, and that because God first loved us, we learn to love the church and the people in the world, laying down our lives for them, all the while learning not to love the things of the world, and that on this journey, think of chapters two and three, we still sin, but when we do, God forgives us through Christ. So I just kind of hear, you know, this dear old man, you know, love God, Don't love the world, love one another, and you'll pretty much be okay. (laughs) Right, just this, there's this beautiful, elegant simplicity. Just love God, don't love the world, and love one another. Well, there's a name for that kind of life that's being commended to us here, at least one way to name it, and that is the, the words that we see in both our gospel and epistle readings this morning of eternal life. So let's, let's think this morning a bit about eternal life being the name for this lived reality and how eternal life is a quality of life. It's like the real, true, lasting life. People sometimes ask me, you know, well, what is eternal life? Or what do you mean, Todd, when you sometimes use the phrase an eternal kind of life? And what I mean to, to say by that is a life that has the quality of eternity infused into it. So a normal human life But the quality of eternity is being infused into that life. It's kind of like the life of God and the age to come breaking into our age and the person and work of Jesus. 
producing in us a kind of life that's rooted in and derived from the Son of God. Right? This is what John is saying to us, that this eternal life that was given to us was given to us through the Son. Or Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, you know this phrase, he's a new creation. Something of eternity has come to them. And so the old is passing away and the new has come. And this is the kind of life that John is envisioning for his pupils or his readers, those who are his students, you might say. So we see in our first line, if you look at your reading uh, this morning in 1 John 5 and verse 13, uh, he, he says straightforward, I write these things so that, and those two little words, so that, alert us to the purpose of the letter. I write this so that you might know, that you might actually have an experiential knowledge that you have eternal life. And this is one of those places where a notion like eternal life, which is deep and wide, and you could find scholarly articles all over the place on a notion like eternal life. But for John, that is a key lived reality, not merely a concept. So I wanna stop right here for just a tiny little rabbit trail. And I just want you to wonder with me for a moment, what sort of thing is the Bible? Now there's a lot of legitimate answers to that from theories of inspiration to textual criticism, all kinds of stuff, lots of legitimate answers to that question, what sort of thing is the Bible? But among those legitimate answers, if we're trying to answer that question, what sort of thing is the Bible for discipleship or formational purposes, then one definition that I think should never be far from our minds is this. It's a reliable record of human experiences with God. The writers are, are almost never just putting forth concepts. They are relating an actual lived life with God. So that Eugene Peterson, he says this kind of stuff all over the place. Um, but for instance, he'll say, there is no secular life. We don't live in two worlds. The most important thing he says for me when I was pastoring was to convince people that everything in the Bible can be lived and lived from the inside out. Oh, this, this I know came from a, he was being interviewed about having written the message. And so he goes on to say, what I tried to articulate in the message is that scripture isn't just something we think, it's a way of life. Or you may know Eugene's little book called Eat This Book, where he says, the Bible reveals a God-centered, God-ordered, God-blessed world in which we find ourselves at home and whole. And this is what John was living. Like he was finding a home for his soul. Like, are you feeling me? He was like finding humanness. Like what it meant to be in the world, what it meant to be a friend, what it meant to be a business owner or a, working for a paycheck or a mom or a brother or sister. Like he, he's, he was finding like genuine Meaning, and, and this is what he's commending to us when he says, this was the life, think of 1 John 1, remember reading this, that the, this life was made manifest to us. This eternal sort of life in Christ was made manifest to us and we've seen it and we testified to it and we proclaim to you this eternal life that we've been living and exploring and that's like been being made known to us and we 
kind of haltingly make our way into it and we, we fall back. Again, think of chapters two and three, but don't worry, when you, when you fall back, you have an advocate with the Father and you're okay, but I, I just know that, man, for me and my friends like Peter especially, it's kind of seemed like two steps forward, one step back. But as we've learned to derive our life from this different kind of life and live our life in it, we've noticed that we're companioned along the way. So if you think of Paul, Paul helps us see, think of Romans 8, that without this kind of eternal life, life devolves into sin and pain and sorrow and and disease and decay. And so, you know, that classic passage in Romans 8, right, where Paul sees the whole world groaning, the whole creation groaning for what? Well, for a different sort of life. And, And John is saying, well, this life has been given to us. It's it's the life to come. You know, think of Revelation where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, and this life has now broke, that life has broken into this life and it's made itself available to us in Jesus. So think chapter two. Remember John said the darkness is passing away and the true light has come and this is the promise of eternal life. Now when John says in verse 13 that he wants us to know this, he would have in mind interactive experiential knowledge. Now, I know this is tough. Now, you might say, well, John, you had that with Jesus. But as John's writing First John, Jesus is all right, long ascended to the Father. So how is it that John is commending to his church, his students, his apprentices? How is it that, he's a, how is, it that he is suggesting to them that they might have a sort of experiential knowledge of God in Christ as he did. And of course, we know the answer to this is that sort of life is mediated to us by the Spirit. So that as we learn to walk in the Spirit, we gradually come to know with a kind of certainty. We begin to know that this life of God that's present to us is real, it's true. There actually is a reality there. Now I, now, I know the average human being today suffers with notions of certainty, and I get it. I have genuine empathy for it. But we need to know that there is a way of like coming gently, slowly, step by step to a sort of certainty that I am living in God and living a different sort of life. But there's a battle here, uh, which shouldn't surprise us. And as some of you know, we've been reading screw tape letters in our um, adult discipleship class. And I want to read you this passage from Screwtape. The humans live in time, but God destines them to eternity. He wants them chiefly to attend to eternity and to the present moment. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. In the present alone is freedom and actuality. And that's what's offered to them as eternity touches the present. So God wants them in touch with eternity through obeying the present voice of conscience, through bearing the present cross, to receiving the present grace, to giving thanks for the present pleasure. But Screwtape says to Wormwood, but our business is to take them away from the eternal, away from an eternal sort of life, and away from the present, and to make them live in the future, Because if we can make them live in the future, we'll then inflame hope and fear and unrealities, avarice, lust, and ambition. All these things look ahead, 
And we want them hag-written by a future. We want them haunted by visions of imminent heaven or hell upon earth. For the future is the least like eternity. And the past is frozen and no longer flows. But the present is all lit up with eternal rays. So this eternal life, it's not chronological. It's not mere duration. It's not just existence. It's, it's not out there somewhere in space and time. It's a qualitative idea. It's a kind of life that we can only discover and live in in the present. Like the past is gone. The future only has fears or hopes attached to it. But where God is is always in reality. So Lewis here speaks in terms of time. I would suggest that you could maybe add to it a rough synonym of think of the present as reality, that God is in reality. And if we can find the courage to find reality, then God will meet us there and we can meet each other there and we can find an eternal sort of life there. But to grow in such knowledge, now we're gonna shift from verse 13 all the way down to the last verse because we can't obviously cover this whole passage in a brief sermon. John wants us to know that if we're gonna grow in that kind of knowledge, I like the way Eugene gets this in the message. He says, Jesus is the true God. So look at the very last sentence of, the, of our passage. Jesus is the true God and the real life. Be on guard against all clever facsimiles. Guard yourself from idols. Well, why? Because idols being counterfeits are incompatible with eternal life. They're incompatible with reality. And idols lead to a death-like kind of existence, not the everlasting life that God gives. You know, think of John 10. We didn't read this this morning, but just before our reading, you have Jesus saying, I've come so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Well, how? Well, then you do have our reading this morning. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. So if you're here this morning wondering, well, how do I get this eternal sort of life in my sort of normal humdrum human life? How do I get that? Well, the answer is we follow Jesus. And you say, well, Todd, I'm trying. And you know, it just doesn't always work out perfect. And that is the way it is. It doesn't work out perfect for anybody. That's why it's called discipleship. That's why it's called learning. I think repentance is a, is a lifelong pursuit. I mean, there was a time, I think January 25th, 1976 or something, that Debbie and I went forward and, you know, were converted and gave our life to Christ. We repented. I won't speak for her. I'll speak for myself and say, I think I've been repenting for the following 43 years in one way or another. Or you might think of it in, in Ignatian terms. Where do I find desolation in my life? And, and there I repent. And I, I, if I can see reality, I can then repent. Where do I find consolation? There I can cooperate with it. But so when you hear this, you just need to hear that this is something we just gently, cheerfully, hopefully childlike, uh, encouraging one another, we just try to live into this sort of life. And so for me, this abundant sort of life that Jesus wants to give comes from the decision that the most vital thing I can do in my life is to nurture my relationship with God. 
to become a student of Jesus, to become the kind of person who just doesn't profess certain doctrines as true, but applies their growing understanding of eternal life to every aspect of their life on earth. But again, this is tricky. There's a challenge here. Because I've, I've, I mean, I've not only read this in the scriptures, but my own life would suggest to me that the gaining of eternal life involves the laying down of inferior ways of life. So again, I don't know why we're quoting Lewis so much this morning, but um, Lewis in Mere Christianity says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Well, what is this business of giving up yourself? Well, again, in, in the screw tape letters, Lewis says, you know, when God is asking human beings to give up their self, he's really only asking them to give up the clamor of self-will. Just think of that agitated part of you. You've sometimes heard me talk about the tyranny of desire. Or for, I don't know, six months or a year now, since I picked this somewhere up in one of James K. Smith's book, this phrase that just kind of rattles around in my head, habituated autonomy where I'm just left to myself. Like if you don't wanna pick up an eternal sort of life, if you don't wanna follow Jesus and pick up an eternal sort of life, then I'm just left with my habituated autonomy. Like just the habits of my individual self. And I think the idea, the sort of evangelistic idea of John the evangelist is sort of like, okay, so then make a decision. You can continue to live in the tyranny of desire or your habituated self or you can find a new and different sort of life, an abundant sort of life in following Jesus, this eternal sort of life. So Lewis goes on to say, lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions. Death to your favorite wishes every day. Death to your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing, Lewis says. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you'll find him. And everything else will be thrown in as well. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added to you as well. Well, in Tom Wright's little commentary on 1 John, I think he has a really elegant summary for us to close our Easter tide thinking. This is the way Tom summarizes 1 John. The true God, the one Jesus, the life of the age to come here among us. This is where we stand. And this is the witness of John. Amen. So maybe this morning as we have a moment of quiet, maybe you could consider what might I be holding on to? Is there something that my hands are so tightly gripped around or fearing something in the future such that I can't receive the eternal kind of life that God wants to give me? And if you find something like that this morning, you may just hear in the lived experience of John and his apprehension and commending to us of an eternal kind of life, the courage to let go and to find a whole different sort of life.